1913, the U.S. Mint decided to change the image on the nickel. Now, for 29 years, it had been the Liberty Head, but they were going to switch it over to what we now call the Indian Buffalo Nickel. Now, this one employee that happened to be very selfish thought this was his opportunity. He thought, since he had access to the print, that he would be able to make five nickels that had the new date, but the old image. Because if he could make only five, they would instantly be extraordinarily rare and very valuable. So he did. At least people thought he did. Because for a while, everyone wondered if it was just folklore, if it was just rumor, like did he really do that? But then over the next 32 years, one showed up, then another one showed up, and another one showed up, Finally, four of the five nickels hit the market. They were like a uh, holy grail for collectors. A guy named George Walton was an avid coin collector, and uh, in 1945, he thought he got his hands on one of them. It was like the best part of his entire collection. So he held on to it. Unfortunately, in 1962, he was killed in an automobile accident. Everything that he had went to his sister. The family wanted to find out what they had in the coin collection, so they took it to an appraiser, and they said, what can you tell us about this, and especially this coin right here? The appraiser looked it over and looked it over and looked it over, and he said, I'm sorry to tell you this, but this is not one of the rare ones. And they were like, ah, okay. So they put it in the attic where it sat for the next 40 years. In 2003, after... The sister had passed. Her son was going through her material up in the attic. And he knew about the coin collection. He knew about that coin that had been proved not to be real. But it just so happens a coin collection, or excuse me, a coin convention was coming through town. And they were going to highlight the four Liberty Head nickels in his hometown, they were offering out a million-dollar bounty for anyone that could come up with a fifth nickel. He thought, well, I know it's probably not legit, but why not give it a shot, yeah? So he went to the convention. They had six appraisers on hand. The appraisers looked at what he had. They argued, they argued, they argued, and they came to a conclusion. Yep, it was the fifth they immediately appraised it at $2.5 million. Can you imagine that? For 40 years, you had $2.5 million sitting in your attic, and you had no idea. You see, as a rookie collector myself, I know that there are always tens of thousands of these little treasures right under our noses, and nobody even knows about it. And I'm thinking, you know what? It kind of seems like that's stuff that God likes to do. You know, we're still discovering new species and all that. God loves to hide things. And I was thinking if he does that with physical stuff, don't you think he would do that with spiritual stuff? Don't you think he'd do that with eternal stuff? Don't you think that an infinite God would hide in his people stuff that would be discovered throughout the rest of their life? I totally think that, right? Well, I'm going to use another example of how God hides extraordinary treasures in very average packaging. Uh, no one would ever say I'm a nature guy. I've made it very clear I'm not a nature guy. 
especially not a geology rock guy. That sounds even worse, right? But uh, have you ever heard of a geode? Even I find them fascinating. Here's what a geode is. It's a regular round rock that looks super boring. It looks like just regular river rock, but when you break it open, it's a cavern of all these beautiful crystals on the inside. I find that intriguing. Why would God do that? But I still think that his greatest glory reveal ever was 2,000 years ago. 30-year-old average Jewish guy comes to his family, comes to his community, and he says, I am the Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for for thousands of years. And they're like, no way, you look way too normal. Now, they had to admit that there was something about him. There was something extraordinary, the way that he talked, the way that he loved. There was something about him. You know, as a matter of fact, his best friend, John wrote this about him. He said in John chapter one, he said, the word of God, whatever that means, became flesh and dwelt among us. Even though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to those which were his own people, but they did not receive him. But those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he would give the right to become children of God. He didn't just live an extraordinary life. He died a very precious death, did he not? He died on the cross for our sins that they might be paid for, that we might be forgiven. He was put in a tomb. It was sealed with a massive rolling rock door and guards were posted. Early on the third day, on a Sunday morning, a group of his female disciples that kind of went with him everywhere they wanted to go anoint the body more. So they get up super early at the crack of dawn. They go out there, and to their surprise, the rock is rolled away. The guards are gone. At first, they're thinking, man, did we get the wrong tomb? And then, what? Angels show up. No, you're at the right place. The Jesus you're looking for is alive. He has risen. That's incredible. And they just start to bawl because this is so amazing. And they realized in that moment for them, that the Son of God had been with them the whole time, that the Jesus was who he said he was, that he was who they needed him to be, that he was who they dreamed that he was. For those ladies in that moment, they knew that God was real for them. You know, I, I believe that for me too. And I don't have the same story as them. I got my own story. I was raised in a Christian home, single mom, she was absolutely in love with God. But I'm not a Christian today because of only my mom. I had to do my own process of discovery. I had to ask my own questions. I had to dig through my own study and research. And indeed I did. I academically studied all the different religions of the world. I, I looked at all that the world's philosophy had to offer and I could not find one that made sense of my reality. I would dig and I would dig and I would dig and every time I hit bedrock, you know what I found? I found that I was always at the feet of Jesus. You see, I'm a Christian today because of my process of discovery and him revealing himself, but not everybody has found Jesus, right? Maybe you're on that road of discovery yourself. 
And when you're on the road, it's not always easy. Sometimes it has a lot of doubt. Sometimes it has a lot of confusion. Sometimes it's filled with pain. And so what do we do when our discovery process is filled with a lot of doubt, a lot of confusion, when it's a lot more complicated than we assumed it would be? What do we do when our discovery process is different than the folks around us, when it takes a different shape, a different route, a different timeline than everyone else around us? Coming to church feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? We look around us and it seems like everyone else is in a different place. Everyone else has more information, has a, a different experience than some of us do. And what do we do when our discovery process includes navigating complexities, difficulties, and pain? Pain is interesting, isn't it? Pain has the proclivity to make the truth really hard to believe. You and I have the luxury of knowing how the Easter story ends. He's risen! But for his first students, they didn't immediately have that luxury. For his first students, they didn't know it right away. That the first women had gone to the tomb and they had seen for themselves that it was empty. But for many others, they did not. And so they were still mourning and they were still wondering and they were still hurting because this is not how it was supposed to be. You weren't supposed to die, Jesus. You said you were the Messiah. So this isn't what we anticipated, what we expected. You were the one who was supposed to conquer evil kingdoms, not get murdered by them. We left our homes to follow you. We left our families to follow you. We left our jobs to follow you. We endured the scrutiny of our friends and family because of who you said you were. Can you imagine the conversation that the Apostle Peter might have had with his father about how he was leaving the fishing business that had been likely started by his grandfather and all to follow some up-and-coming rabbi? Yeah, but we did, Lord. We followed you. We, we talked with you. We ate with you. We drank with you. We did ministry with you. And now, now you are dead. And we had to watch it happen. We had to watch them put nails in your wrists. We had to watch them put a crown of thorns on your head. We had to watch them strip the skin from your back. And for these disciples in those first couple of days after his crucifixion, the big question is, what's next? What happens now? Because this is not how it was supposed to be. And there's nothing quite like the pain of what's not supposed to be. My marriage wasn't supposed to end. My body wasn't supposed to get sick. My money wasn't supposed to run out. My child wasn't supposed to die. My relationships weren't supposed to be this complicated. And often the pain of what isn't supposed to be makes it hard to believe what's true about Jesus. And perhaps this was the headspace of those first two disciples who we meet in the final chapter of Luke, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. 
And the Bible's underneath the seat in front of you. It's page 885. And in this chapter, we, we meet these two disciples who are walking from the city of Jerusalem to the town Emmaus after Jesus has been crucified and resurrected, but because they are in a different place in their discovery process, we find them distraught over the death of their friend and teacher, and we find them unaware that he is alive. Luke 24, beginning at verse 13, the Bible says that the two disciples were going to a village named Emmaus. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, about how hard it had been and how scary it had been and how painful it had been and how much was still unknown and about how disappointed they were in God. Y'all ever been disappointed in God? Come on, I know you dressed up in your nice Easter suit, but you ever been disappointed in God? Mm. And the text says in verse 15 that while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. It is interesting how heartbreak can keep us from recognizing God and recognizing his activity in our lives. And so Jesus comes up to them and they think him a stranger and, and, and he asks them what they're talking about. What y'all talking about? What y'all talking about? What y'all talking about? And they're genuinely, genuinely surprised by his question. They ask, are you the only person in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? What things, he asked. And I don't know about you, but I'm so glad to serve a God who invites us to share our things the things that are hard, the things that are scary, the things that overwhelm us, the things that we don't understand, the things that don't make sense, the things that are not fair. What things? He asked. Verse 19, about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and in deed before God and all the people, and they killed him. But we had hoped, we had hoped, we had hoped, we had hoped that he would be the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, isn't it terrible when things are already hard and then there's more? What's more is our companions have gone down to the tomb and they found it empty. And the women, the women say that he's alive, but we haven't seen him. We haven't seen him. We go to church every Sunday, but we, we haven't seen him. We sing the worship songs with the worship team, but we haven't seen him. We read our Bibles and we listen to the podcast and we're praying and we're fasting, but we haven't we haven't seen him. And Jesus says in verse 25, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? He makes this connection between present sufferings and eternal glory. In verse 27, my favorite verse in this passage, and beginning with Moses, that's Exodus, and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of Scripture concerning himself. And what I love about this is that Jesus meets them where they are. He is only on the road to Emmaus because they are on the road to Emmaus. And so he meets them there and he helps them to understand how his plan for the world exists even in the painful parts 
of their lives. Even in the parts of their lives that weren't supposed to be, God was working with it and working through it and bringing it together for his good purposes. And the text says that he spends the whole day, the whole day. Aren't you glad that God's work in your life isn't relegated to an hour on a Sunday morning? He spends the whole day walking them through it and helping them discover. And I just wonder if he might be here today, willing to walk with you through the things that have been hard, the things that have been scary, the things that have been painful, the things that have been confusing. I wonder if he might be here today wanting to help you understand and discover the ultimate truth that he is indeed alive. Listen, all I want you to know is that God fills your life even the not-supposed-to-be parts, with purpose and power and wants to grab you by the hand and help you to understand what it is that he is doing. And what if today can be the day that we stop letting pain and confusion and heartbreak keep us from discovering more truth about God and what he's doing in our lives and what he's doing in the world even in the hard parts. We're about to see in this story from the Bible that in the midst of heartache and confusion, that there was so much more going on in the lives of these two disciples than they could have ever possibly imagined. And and what if the same can be said for you? What if there's more to the story? What if there is more to the story? And don't worry, y'all, I'm the last one. Let's keep reading in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 28. It says, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He, Jesus, acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is now evening and the day is far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And (laughs) as they get ready to eat things get a little wild. Verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So they're getting ready to eat. Jesus takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and then all of a sudden it says, their eyes were open, boom, Jesus disappears, and these two people are left looking at each other going, what the heck? I knew there was something about that guy, but I just couldn't quite put my finger on it. I don't know about you, if I was one of those two people, I think my head would have exploded. But I want to go back to this phrase, their eyes were opened. What does that mean? It means they understood the truth. And what was that truth? That Jesus had been with them all along. They'd been walking along the road. They were grieving. They were frustrated. They were confused. They were facing an uncertain future. They meet this guy who comes to talk with them, and he sure does know a whole lot about the Bible. And then they sit down and eat, and their eyes are open. And what do they discover? Jesus had been with them all along. And I wonder if some of us on this Easter Sunday morning, that we need to have our eyes 
opened. Well, what if on this Easter Sunday, do some of us need to discover our own nickel in the attic to recognize that Jesus has been with us all along? He's been with us through the pain and the grief. He's been with us through our questions and our doubts and our times where we just didn't really care. He's been with us in the triumphs. He's been with us that time that that Christian or that church hurt you. He's been with us when it's felt like our prayers have gone unanswered and he's taken care of us in a hundred small ways that we don't even understand. He's been with us every step of the way. And he's not meant to be a family relic that we just sort of take out of the attic every once in a while. We were made to live our lives with him by our side. Now, this is a little bit weird, what I'm about to say, but just, just roll with me with it. Do you, do you ever think about what it would be like to have Jesus, like, physically with you? And I don't mean like he's your neighbor and you share a back fence. I mean, like, literally, he is with you all the time. I don't know what that would be like, but I'm confident about a few things. Number one, he would be way less judgy than we are. <laughs> like, it wouldn't be like you reach for that second slice of cake and Jesus is over there going, <clears throat> Like, no. Number two, he would be really good at a lot of stuff. Like, your need for instructional videos on YouTube would plummet. <laughs> and number three, I don't think he'd be disappointed in us. I don't think he'd be disappointed in us. Now, I'm speculating, of course. But if Jesus were with us physically, I think we would come alive in ways that we can't even think about now. I think we discover a whole new way of viewing our lives, and I think it would be purposeful and, and challenging and beautiful. I think he'd help us see what really matters in this life, and we'd have a greater appreciation for the sacredness of what our lives are. I think we'd be more fun to be around. I think we'd laugh more. I think we'd cry more. And I think we wouldn't feel so alone. And I think all the, the harmful stuff that you and I do, come on, the harmful stuff that, that we do that hangs us up, I, I think it would start to lose its appeal because Jesus would open our eyes to see the world as it really is. See, in the Bible, Jesus told his friends that when he returned to heaven, that the Holy Spirit was going to come and fill them and be with them. And the good news for us today is that the Bible teaches is that same Holy Spirit can live in us. Jesus might not be with us physically, but his spirit has been with us all along. Will we open our eyes to see him? If you keep reading in Luke's gospel, it's really kind of interesting and cool what happens. Uh, Jesus appears to more of his disciples who, you got to remember, were not expecting that and are very confused. And in the course of their gawking at him and looking at his wounds and all this stuff, Jesus does what you do in that situation. He says, hey, do you have anything to eat? So they give him some broiled fish, and I'm sure they were watching with great interest as he ate it. But then after that, he gives his disciples a job to do. He says, I have a message that I need you to carry out into the world. It is a message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And he says, as you share this message, the Holy Spirit will be with you. And I find all of that amazing, but, but what I also find interesting is what you don't, won't find as you continue reading in the New Testament. Because what you won't see is Jesus' disciples or the earliest Christians, you won't find any of them saying, wow, Jesus is alive. That means
means we get to go to heaven when we die. See, certainly they understood that to be the case, but, but don't miss this. They knew that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything for this life. That if Jesus is alive, he is not just their teacher, he is their Lord. And they were invited now into a life of repentance. That word just means to change your thinking and forgiveness. The disciples responded to that invitation and it changed the world. See, when our eyes are open to see Jesus, we realize that Christian faith is not just a box we check. And it's not just a ticket to heaven. It's an invitation into an entirely new kind of life. It's an invitation to a radically new life where we can be forgiven and we can be invited into a community of people in a local church who are following Jesus together. And I got to tell you, I look out into the world today and man, I see an awful lot of insecurity, don't you? And I think that's at the root of why we're so mean and nasty to each other. Not much has changed since middle school. We get mean because we're insecure. And I see an awful lot of individualism where, man, it's all about me and I got my individual rights and I'm going to share all my opinions with all y'all about all the things all the time. And I'm going to tear down anyone who disagrees with me. And I just want to ask you the question, how's that working for us? Are we happier? Are we more peaceful? Are we less anxious? See, the idea of repentance becomes a lot less scary when we realize the way that we're doing things isn't working that well. And it becomes less scary still when we understand that the one who calls us to repent loves us perfectly and knows how life works best. What if there was one who was just like that? What if there was one who lovingly invited us to change our thinking? What if there was one who made it safe for us to confess our sins so that we don't have to live in denial or shame anymore? What if there was one who offered real forgiveness in a new, healthier, more joyful direction for our lives? What, is there, what if there was one who knew that individualism was only going to make us miserable, so he called us into a community of acceptance and love and growth? What if there was one who taught us that to be part of a local church isn't something we do to appear more moral or avoid feeling guilty or whatever, but that it was an opportunity to make real friends while making a real difference in the world? This Easter, may we discover that there is one who is just like that. His name is Jesus, and he's been with you all along. Would you bow your heads with me? I'm gonna pray here in just a moment, but before I do that, I just wanna talk to you for one more minute with your eyes closed, head bowed. There's an invitation that the resurrected Jesus offers us. It's not just a ticket to heaven, it's a ticket to an entirely new kind of life. It's an invitation to a life where we acknowledge that our ways don't work and open ourselves up to God's ways. It's a way that invites us to experience forgiveness because we recognize that when Jesus died on the cross, he was dying for our sins. Maybe you're here today and you have never responded to that invitation that God gives us. I wanna invite you. You can pray with me in just a second, respond to God's invitation personally to you and you can become a Christian today. Maybe you're here today and you would say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but if you're just being real, real honest, 
You'd say, you know, my faith doesn't really mean that much to me. It's like the nickel in the attic. Maybe today can be the day that you begin to experience the richness and joy and peace that comes from following Jesus. And you can recognize he has been with you all along and your life can change as you begin to follow him. If you're in either of those camps, I wanna pray. And I wanna invite you just to pray along silently in your heart while I pray out loud. And if you do pray with me, after we're done here, head on out to the Connect Center and just let our team out there know, say, hey, I prayed along with the pastor today and it's not gonna be awkward or weird. They're just, they wanna congratulate you and we've got some simple resources just to help you out on your journey. So I'm gonna pray out loud, pray along with me. Jesus, we thank you for your love. We acknowledge today that you are the Son of God who came to earth and lived a perfect life. And we acknowledge that when you died on the cross, you were paying the penalty for our sins. So we thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask that you would come into our hearts and that you would redirect us. We want to repent, to change our thinking so that we can be in line with your ways. We want to follow you and we want to experience the joy and peace and richness that comes from not simply saying that we're a Christian, but from following you, from being a part of your community and really making you the center of our lives. So we thank you for your love. Please come into our hearts in Jesus' name. And for all of us, Jesus, we thank you that you have been with us all along. May we be men and women who live with the joy and peace of knowing that you are with us, that you are alive, that we have the hope of heaven, and that this life is overflowing with purpose because you are with us, you are for us, and you are working through us. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your awesome name and all of God's people said, amen. amen.